Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, beginning in verse 16 and running through verse 30. Um, I don't know if you all are, or anybody here is an American Idol fan, the TV show or the contestants go on and sing and Jamie and I used to watch the show quite a bit we don't really watch it too much anymore we, we liked it when the judges were mean um, and so when they started just cuddling the contestants like you know that was that was that was, that was swell um, we just like this is not as fun to watch you want them to see them break them down and cry and all that so um, <clears throat> anyway we'll watch it every now and then we usually watch it like in the very beginnings because we want to see the the catastrophes that happen of people trying to come out and sing, and we just get entertained by their um, blessing of voice. Um, so anyway, I bring that up because in the show, I'm pretty sure they still do it. Usually they get down to like two to three or four of the final contestants, and then they ship them home. Uh, they go to have a homecoming, and they arrive in their town to these massive crowds of people that are just in love with them now. And you, I always wonder when those happen, like, I wonder how many of these people actually knew them before they went to the show, and now they're, like, enamored with them, and uh, they're just very excited that they have come home to do a performance and uh, represent the town on this show. Um, it's their homecoming. And so I bring that up. Um, because this morning in our passage, Jesus has a homecoming. He's returning home to Nazareth. This is the first time in any of the Gospels that we're told he returns to Nazareth after he has gone out into the wilderness to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, the Gospel of Matthew and Mark both record this event, but Luke gives us a little bit more detail. So we'll be hanging out in Luke for the most part, but we'll bring some of Matthew and Mark's recording in it as well. So let's begin reading the word of the Lord. Again, we're in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John's after that. And we're going to begin in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physicians, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable or welcomed in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you for allowing us to worship you through these songs. And uh, Lord, that there is nothing better than you. 
And we thank you for the grace you've given us. We thank you for the spirit that dwells inside of us as your children. And Father, we thank you for your word, that we're able to hear your voice speaking to our hearts to be transformed by you. And Father, I pray in this moment that we have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that's ready to accept truth. And so use me as an instrument of your righteousness and pray your kingdom and will will be done in each and every life here in this place. And Father, you know the hearts of every individual here. You know whether or not they belong to you, whether they, they have confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have found forgiveness and eternal life. And so, Lord, if there are, is an individual or individuals in this room that is yet to make that confession of faith, Lord, I pray today your spirit would speak to them, bring them to a place of conviction and repentance, and ultimately so they can find freedom in you. Thank you for what's going to happen here this morning. Thank you for what's already been happening. And we pray it's all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the event begins, you want to jump back with me to verse 16, that Jesus returns to Nazareth and it says where he had been brought up. The New Living Translation says it a little more understandable. It says Nazareth is Jesus' boyhood home. Now most of us know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies in the Gospel of Matthew. We're told that. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're also told that after the wise men visited in chapter 2 and did not return to King Herod, Herod became very upset and sought to kill all the infant boys that were two years of age or younger, again, to fulfill a prophecy. The Lord directed Joseph and Mary to leave before Herod could do this sort of thing. They fled to Egypt, again, to fulfill a prophecy concerning Jesus. When eventually Herod died, the Lord again led Joseph and Mary to come back to the land of Israel, in which we're told in Matthew chapter 2, that they came and they lived in a city called Nazareth. Again, to fulfill a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospel of Luke doesn't cover any of these sort of details concerning Jesus' toddler years, but it does tell us in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke, after Mary and Joseph did everything according to the law of the Lord uh, with Jesus, that they returned to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I bring this up because the people in Nazareth, this wasn't just his hometown, the people of Nazareth would have known who Jesus was. They most likely would have remembered him as a child, that he never lied. He was always obedient to his parents. He was never disrespectful to anyone else in the village. He was a good kid. I mean, he was Jesus, God in the flesh. But now he's come back. And he's become well-known throughout the region, throughout the area. Reports have been given of him doing healings and casting out demons and reports of the messages he preaches and the lessons he gives and the miracles he produces. And though the crowds have been enamored with him, Jesus remains humble here in verse 16. He goes about doing what he always does. It says he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and that was his custom. That was his tradition. In our language today, we would say Jesus went to church, and he went faithfully. So be like Jesus, right? A little context about synagogue worship, because we're probably not familiar with it, but historical Jewish accounts tell us that during this time, there would be singing, much like we do here at church. But they would sing from Psalm 145 to 150, which would then be followed by reciting what was known as the Shema, which can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And there's a couple other verses attached to it, but we get the idea. And everyone at the synagogue, after worshiping, would recite this together in unison. 
After reciting the Shema, there was then a reciting what is known as the Tathela, that is, 18 benedictions. These were Jewish prayers. And so the Jewish people would recite these 18 prayers together. After the scroll containing portions of the Old Testament would be brought out of their container, they would be read aloud by whoever is going to be teaching on that particular day in the synagogue. And once it was read, they would hand the scriptures back over to the attendant or the leader of the synagogue to put them away. Then they would give a brief sermon to explain the text, to interpret it to the people that were gathered in the worship service that day. And as the text was explained, the people would then come down to what was known as the benediction. And they would recite that together out of Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26, where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then they would say, Amen. And they would go home. And that was a synagogue worship. This is what is supposed to have happened, but it didn't happen on this day. Now Luke doesn't elaborate on what led up to Jesus' reading because his audience would have been familiar with the order of service at a synagogue. But Jesus most likely has been in Nazareth for a little bit of time, even though we read in verse 16 he came to Nazareth. He's most likely been here for a little bit of time. Because the synagogue leader, what we might call the preacher, would have had to offer an invitation for Jesus to come and be the guest speaker on this particular Sabbath. And what that tells us is that the synagogue leader and those who gathered in that synagogue in Nazareth have already began to accept Jesus as a rabbi or teacher, even though he has no training whatsoever. But again, that's going to change before this service is over. We're also told Jesus was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. This would have been something Jesus would have requested to the synagogue leader that he would read it. The passage that he reads, which we read in verses 18 and 19, come from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And the passage in that chapter focuses on the year of the Lord's favor falling once again upon his people. What's interesting about the passage or verses that Jesus read is he leaves out the next portion of verse 2 from Isaiah 61, where it says that the day and the day of vengeance of our God. I bring that because so far what we've seen in this series is that Jesus is intentional. He's intentional everywhere he goes. He's intentional with everything he says. He intentionally came to Nazareth to be in the synagogue on this Sabbath. He intentionally chose to read from the book of Isaiah. He intentionally chose to omit that last part of verse 2. And in omitting that line, what Jesus is telling the people that are gathered in worship, he's letting the people of Nazareth that now is the time that they are living in the Lord's favor. Now, when does the Lord's vengeance come? The Lord's vengeance is going to come leading up to Jesus' second coming, which we've been looking on Wednesday nights in Revelation. Jesus wanted the people in Nazareth, people who knew him since a child, people who have been hearing reports that what time they were currently living in, and that was the jubilation of Jesus. The year of the Lord's favor actually points to another passage of Scripture that all the Jewish people who were gathered in this synagogue on this Sabbath would have been familiar with. It points to a passage out of the fast-paced book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus chapter 25... God instructs his people about a year known as the year of Jubilee. That's what that phrase, year of the Lord's favor, is pointing to. 
Now, the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary writes, the year of Jubilee came at the end of a cycle of seven sabbatical years. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 10 specifies it as the 50th year, though some scholars believe is actually his 49th year, making it the seventh sabbatical year. Now, in this year, there was a proclamation of liberty upon the Israelites who had become enslaved in debt. There was a restoration of land to families who had been compelled to sell it out, sell it out of economic need in the past previous years. And so what would happen the year of Jubilee, if you were enslaved to debt, debt was wiped clean. If you sold your family's plot, you would be it would returned back to your family. If you were under someone else's authority as their slave because you had to sell yourself into their labor, year of Jubilee, you would be set free. You would find liberty. You would find freedom. So this would have been the understanding of the people of the synagogue on this day when Jesus reads from this passage. The problem is they misunderstood what Jesus was actually saying and the spiritual application that Jesus was making to the people of Nazareth. Verse 18 is no doubt Jesus pointing to his baptism when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. It was at the baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River to which God spoke from heaven and Jesus began his public messianic ministry. Notice the first aspect of Jesus' ministry and what is emphasized over and over again in what Jesus reads. He says, verse 18, he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Next line, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to preach. That's what he came. He came to preach. He came to announce. And though he does deal with the poor and hangs out with them, the meaning here of proclaiming good news to the poor is not speaking of poverty. It's speaking of being spiritually bankrupt. The word captives can also be read as prisoners. It's typically applied to prisoners of war. But in this context, Jesus is speaking about those who are in spiritual bondage. With this, though, we can see how Jesus' words might have been misunderstood. The people were hoping for a Messiah to show up, the long-awaited Messiah, which would lead them back into wealth and power and authority on this land, just like in the days of King David and King Solomon. They were hoping for a Messiah who would come and release them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. People were obviously misunderstanding what Jesus was saying which he gets to the point when he delivers his sermon, which we find in verses 24 through 27. The recovering of the sight to the blind isn't necessarily speaking of Jesus' miracles, which we do know that he has healed blind people, but to those who are living in darkness, in spiritual darkness. They are blinded by their sin. We can find this example when Paul was given his testimony in Acts chapter 28 or 26. He relays to King Agrippa and Festus of his calling that God gave him. And he tells them, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. Why? Because they were blind. So they may return, may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is what Jesus is alluding to about bringing, recovering the sight of the blind. He says he wants to bring them liberty, which he says twice in this one little passage that he reads in the synagogue this day. The word liberty means to be released, to be pardoned, 
to be forgiven. Jesus is saying he came to forgive and to release those who are imprisoned to sin and to free those who are being crushed and oppressed and downtrodden because of their sin. Again, another passage, the crowds most likely misunderstood as they're probably thinking, all right, he's going to come and get us out of the oppression that the Roman Empire is putting on us. Now, after reading the passage, and he hands it back to the attendant who would have been the synagogue leader, they put it away, and then Jesus takes a seat. The sitting down there in verse 20 is the posture when someone was getting prepared to teach. So that Jesus wouldn't stand up and preach like this. He would find a seat and he would talk. And that's, that's how they taught in the synagogue. That's when everyone would know something was about to happen. It says there in verse 20 that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It means that everyone was now on the edge of their seat waiting for the way he was going to interpret and give them understanding to this passage. The proclamation of the passage being fulfilled through Jesus is to put all in attendance in awe. And at this point, at this point in Scripture, we have to see that Jesus has them in the palm of his hand. They are eagerly anticipating what is going to come out of his next, out of his mouth next. The realization of the crowd would be that God has not forgotten us. God has not forsaken us. And that they were currently living under the Roman oppression to know that God, we are in the time of God's favor once again. So that would be a partially correct interpretation. But we have to keep in mind, Jesus isn't concerned with Rome. Jesus already has authority over Rome. And the problem is the crowd is they can't get past what they know about Jesus. We've known this kid. We've known this guy since he was a boy. We know who he is. We know who his family is. Matthew gives us a little more direction to add when at the end of verse 22, where Luke says, is not this Joseph's son? Well, Matthew gives a little extra details. They ask, where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, verse 2 through 3 says something very similar. The point is the crowds began to marvel at Jesus, but then because they knew Jesus and who he was as a child and growing up, they are now becoming offended by Jesus. And this is the speed bump of Jesus. See, we can know all sorts of things about Jesus' life. We can know all about his messages and his miracles. But it ultimately comes down to a question that Jesus posed to his own disciples. Who do you say I am? In ways is what the crowd is trying to say there with that question is, is not this Joseph's son, except they're doing it more of a negative way. Who does this guy think he is? The crowds were enamored with his words. They were in awe of the authority to which he spoke and read the scriptures but ultimately, his words had zero impact on their heart. They had heard the words of God. They had heard the promises of God's word. They had, were in the presence of God. They heard the promise of the freedom that God wanted to give them, and yet they were unmoved. And we can all be in the same dangerous place when we open the word of God, when we come to church and we gather in a Bible study, when we hear the words of God. We understand what God is trying or is saying to us. 
but then we're not moved in any way whatsoever. The Word of God is meant to reprove, to teach, to correct, and to train in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But if we gather in this place and we only hear the words of God and we don't allow His Word and His Spirit to transform us, we're just like the crowds here in the synagogue in Nazareth. Even worse, when we hear the words of God and then we interpret them to the way we want them to be interpreted, we become just like the crowds in the synagogue here in Nazareth. Jesus being God in the flesh, he was omniscient. So he would have known what the crowds were murmuring. He would have known the questions they were asking. Even if they didn't say it out loud, we've seen that already in Scripture, how he knows the hearts of men. He knows what's going through their mind. And so this leads him to the teaching point and why he read the text. In verse 23, Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus knows the murmurings of the crowd. He knows the hearts of the crowd. He knows that they're enamored with him. But like everyone else he's encountered, they still want proof. This is what they mean by we have heard what you did in Capernaum. The crowds, they didn't want the liberty that the Word of God was speaking over them. They didn't want the freedom that God was wanting to give them. Instead, they wanted Jesus to, hey, why don't you do one of those tricks we've heard about? Why don't you do one of those miracles again? I, I mean, if you're so willing to do it in Galilee, and you're so willing to do it in Jerusalem, in Israel, so willing to do it in Capernaum, surely the hometown boy would be willing to perform a miracle or two amongst people who know him. Surely he would do it at home. Ultimately, the crowds, when Jesus reveals that in verse 23, the crowds wanted him to prove himself. This leads Jesus to get to the point of the passage to which he wrote, read from Isaiah. Jesus' sermon is captured in verses 24 through 27. These verses are Jesus' sermon, which was the tradition we've talked about that's going on in the synagogue. In verse 24, Jesus opens up with a truthful statement. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This is Jesus' way of telling the crowds there at the synagogue that he is in fact a prophet, and these words are actually going to come back to bite them by the time he's done with his sermon. Jesus then pulls from two Old Testament stories. The first one deals with Elijah in verses 25 and 26. It's pulled from 1 Kings chapter 17, deals with Elijah going to a widow. During this time period, you can go read it later, Elijah has pronounced that a massive drought and a famine is going to come upon Israel, and he pronounces it to King Ahab, which King Ahab tells Elijah to get out of his presence. And so Elijah flees to a place of refuge, and in that place of refuge, the Lord summons Elijah to go to a widow in Sidon. Now, Sidon, even though we have a map, was not a part of Israel's territory. And so the people living in Sidon would be considered Gentiles. So God tells his prophet, his messenger, you are to go to this Gentile widow. Jesus' point here is that there are plenty of widows in Israel, amongst God's covenantal people, that God could have sent Elijah to to go help them out. But instead, God tells Elijah to go to Sidon because God's people during this time were living in idolatry. They were disobeying God. 
And so Elijah goes to this Gentile widow because she's going to show more faith than the people of Israel. The widow was in such poverty when Elijah arrives, he asks her, hey, can you make me something to eat? The widow responds, I've only got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left for me and my one son, and my plan right now is that I'm going to cook it so we can die. That was where she was in life. I'm going to cook it, we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. She was poor. She was by herself. And there's a famine and a drought that's impacting her land too. So Elijah speaks to her and reassures her that if she would show him kindness, because the Lord sent him to her, and if she would show him kindness in making food for him, then she would never run out of flour or oil until it rained again. And miraculously, this woman who is ready to die believes the word of Elijah, the prophet, who would have been the word of the Lord, and she showed a faith that the Israelites were failing to have. The second story in verse 27 deals with Elisha. This is Elijah's understudy. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. In that event, Naaman is the commander of the army of the king of Syria, making him a Syrian, not a Jew, not a covenantal person of God. And at this stage in history, when Elisha and Naaman have an encounter, the Assyrians are raiding through Israel, and they're taking captives back to their homeland. At this point, Naaman has taken a young Israelite girl to go into his home to begin working there. Then Naaman comes down with leprosy. As mentioned with the children, leprosy was not a very good thing to have. You're thinking this is not the time of modern medicine. The Israelites were commanded when someone had leprosy that that person was to give a purification offering and then they would go out of the camp for a period of seven days and then come back and then if the leprosy wasn't gone, they wasn't gone, they would give another offering and they would be having it told to go out of the camp. If the leprosy never went away, then the people of God were commanded to excommunicate the individual with leprosy. And so Naaman coming down with leprosy, this is a very dire situation for him. But the Israelite girl whom he captured tells Naaman or tells his mistress, hey, there is a prophet in Israel, and he may be able to help you out. So Naaman goes and tries to find Elisha. And a couple of events ensue, and you, you can read on your own. And Elisha tells Naaman, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Well, Naaman kind of upset about that for a while, but eventually he gets convinced by Elisha, showing that he too, a Syrian, had faith in the word of God to be freed of his disease. Now, the point of these two passages is God used his prophets, and prophets were messengers. They were like microphones for God to do great and mighty works in the life of Gentiles. He did so because the Gentiles experienced the mighty hand of God by understanding their need for God's intercession while the people of Israel had come spiritually imprisoned, living in spiritual darkness, hence that word blind. Yet these two Gentiles understood their oppression and they responded by faith. They trusted the word of God. The point is, Jesus is trying to point the Nazareth people for their need for him. The need for Jesus. This is what presents the problem. 
The people of Nazareth didn't view themselves as spiritually poor. They did not view themselves as spiritually imprisoned. They did not view themselves as spiritually bankrupt. They did not see the need for Jesus and what he was offering them on this day. They wanted the miracles, not the Messiah. And they understood the sermon, but in Jesus comparing the, the, them to a Gentile woman and a Gentile commander, they were greatly insulted, hence the reaction. To add further insult, to say that Jesus was anointed by God, meaning he was going to be the Messiah, and that he's going to go to the Gentiles too, that's near blasphemy. So the point is, we have to understand who we are. We have to understand what we need. Who we are without Jesus, what, or who, where we are without Jesus. Because when we understand who we are and where we are without Jesus, it's only then that we can find what we truly need from Jesus. Without Jesus, according to Isaiah, we are spiritually bankrupt. Without Jesus, we are imprisoned in our sin. Without Jesus, we are spiritually blind and living in darkness. Without Jesus, we are only remaining in the oppression of the enemy. But then there's a positive. With Jesus, and knowing our need for Jesus, we are spiritually filled, free from sin, living in the light with our eyes, ears, and heart open to truth, and we are free from the clutches of the enemy. Perhaps there's someone here today that needs to know why they needed Jesus. That's why. Without him, you're lost. And you're heading for a place eternally separated from God. Final thing we see is the response to Jesus. Verse 28 and 30. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The point of that, especially in verse 28 when they heard these things, it's the people in the synagogue this day understood the point Jesus was making. They understood the interpretation of the passage and the sermon he made. They understood when Jesus was saying that they are, in fact, less spiritual and less wise than the two Gentiles who heard the word of God through the prophets, and they responded. Jesus was offering them freedom. He was offering them mercy. He was offering them grace. And how did they respond? They took offense. This crowd, which began marveling at Jesus, was now enraged with him. That's the word wrath. It's like growling. They were furious. See, that's where we need to get, though. We need the truth, not the wrath or the fury, but we need the truth to understand it, that we are nothing without Jesus. This is where the gospel begins. We, to accept the gospel, to accept salvation, it begins to, with the understanding that we are all sinners. And there's nothing we can do in our power to get rid of our sin problem. Jesus was telling the people who knew him since a child, look, you all do not have it all together. And they took offense. But that's where we've got to come before God. 
God, I'm a total wreck. I don't have it all together. And the reality of their response is it just proved Jesus' words right from verse 24. They just proved that in their hearts they understood, man, this guy is speaking truth. But truth sometimes hurts. Truth brings conviction. Truth makes us uncomfortable. And what God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the gospel offer us may not always be what we want, but we have to realize it's exactly what we need. Jesus didn't come to set the people free from the Roman Empire. Jesus didn't come to promise us riches on this earth. Jesus came to lift up those who were being crushed by sin and the enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy them. And he came to set them free from that. The crowd was filled with wrath, verse 28. It was a nice day at church, wasn't it? It started nice. And then it became one of those ugly business meetings. People are just yelling at each other, and they're very upset. They were so enraged. Going back to the synagogue worship, they were so enraged in this moment. They didn't even finish the synagogue service. There was no, Lord, bless you and keep you. It's now we're going to beat you and kill you. There wasn't a prayer for God's face and grace to shine. It's we're going to put you in your place, and we want you to die. There was no lifting or giving of peace, but rather they wanted to smash Jesus to pieces. And this all happened because they understood what Jesus was saying, but they didn't want what he was offering because they didn't believe they needed it. Probably heard his word and said, Jesus, what are you talking about? We're good people. We got it all together. We're, we're fine. We're God's covenantal people. We're not as corrupt as the Gentiles. We're not half-breeds like the Samaritans. Jesus, this is your hometown. We're your, your, your home people. Your family lives here still. Here's the thing, when we think we have it all together, and we become so full of ourselves, we've got no room in our heart for God to fill us. Responding to Jesus is what the gospel calls people to do. And the people will either respond in acceptance or they're going to respond the way the Nazarenes did this day, and focus, forcing Jesus out of their presence. This, this crowd actually had the intention of killing Jesus. That's what verse 29 is telling us. They took him outside the town to throw him down a hill, and after they throw him down the hill, they would stone him to death. Because they thought what he's saying, this is blasphemy. The, the, the awkward thing about this is the day's the Sabbath. And according to the Sabbath tradition and the Sabbath laws of the Jews, they weren't allowed to do this. They were not permitted to do this. But when people are given truth and they understand it, they might respond irrationally to it because they don't want to believe it. These Jews from Nazareth were going to break a Sabbath tradition because they were so upset. You know what they got upset about? Their feelings got hurt. Their feelings got hurt. Verse 30 says, Jesus excused himself from this tirade. And he was able to get out of his mess because he did not come to die at the hands of an angry mob in Nazareth. Jesus came to die on a cross by the angry, angry mobs of Jerusalem. I'm guessing Jesus' mother, Mary, wasn't there that day. I imagine she would have spoken up or at least tried to do something. 
Jesus' brothers may have been there that day, because we do know in Scripture at one point in time, they just thought Jesus was crazy. Ultimately, it brings us back to the question, though, we had earlier. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the son of the living God? Did he live a perfect life according to God's standards, die on a cross and rise three days later to grant forgiveness and salvation? Is he your Savior? If you're here this morning, you can answer that, those questions with a yes, then you've gotten Jesus' freedom. And if you are in Christ, then you are free indeed. But Jesus said he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Again, he's not speaking about financial poverty. He's speaking about spiritual bankruptcy. See, without Jesus, a Christian or an individual is spiritually bankrupt because they're cut off from the presence of God, the God who loves them. This is why Jesus came, and this is why he said it is good news, which is also the word gospel. See, God created you for a relationship with him. But your sin, if you have yet to say yes to Jesus Christ, your sin is separating you from that relationship. And if your sin is not taken care of, you will be eternally separated from God forever in a place the Bible defines as hell. And you might be like the people of Nazareth. You might say, well, I'm a good person. I do nice things. Doesn't matter. See, good people, if they're still in their sin, good people still go to hell. But Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life so he could pay the price for sin, to take God's full wrath for the sins of the world. And he died on the cross. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to say yes to Jesus, to that Jesus, then God has brought you here for this to be the day of your salvation and to be found in the Lord's favor. And when we have a time of invitation, Nick's going to come and lead us, I believe, with Joel. We're going to sing a song called Amazing Grace, and that's exactly what it is. But if you need to accept Jesus Christ for the first time, I'm going to invite you to come down. You can just sit in the front row, and we'll talk, and we'll celebrate. I promise you there won't be a believer in this place who will not be excited for you. But maybe you're here, and you've been trying to make Jesus something he's never intended to be. He came to be your Savior, your Messiah your Lord, your advocate. Maybe we just need to worship him for who he is. The book of Revelation says that he is worthy. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Let's sing of his worthiness this morning. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness. You are good. You are faithful. Father, you know that... (laughs) Even if we are found in you, we still don't have it all together. We still need you every single day, every single moment. We need your strength. We need your loving hand, sometimes your hand of discipline. But Lord, thank you that you've given us your word that nothing can separate us from you. Nothing can separate us from your love, and you promise to never leave us or forsake us, and you dwell inside of us. But Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's yet to accept you as their Lord and Savior, I pray your spirit will grab a hold of their hearts in this moment. And they would walk down the aisle and find a seat here in the front row. That you would change their eternal destination in a moment. Forgive us if we failed you in any way, and we just thank you for this day. We praise on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.